Hi, this is David Sachs, and welcome to Spiritual Tools for an Outrageous World. Every week we do a little couples therapy between us and God. It's a chance to deepen and explore our most important relationship. Okay, I'm glad you're here. I want to talk about holiness. And it's amazing because Torah actually is going to give us a way to understand and a way to live in a holy way. So the reason why that's a little bit surprising, maybe that sounds obvious to you. It's not obvious. Let me tell you why. Because the word holy is something that's sort of like out of this world. It's so abstract. It's so ethereal. So you're saying that there's actually a concrete definition of what can be holy and how to be holy. So that's, that's amazing. And that's indicative of what the Torah is doing at all times. A lot of times, the, just the laws of the Torah, they seem to be like very, very abundant. But the idea is, how can we harness the above, harness the energy of the higher realms and usher it down into this world? So that, that's sort of like the mechanics of what holiness is and what's, what the mitzvot are doing. They're allowing these divine pathways to bring the holiness from above and to bring it down into this world. And even more amazingly, to bring it through us. You can be a porthole, this conduit for transacting holiness from above to below. And then you lift the entire world up. Or let me put it in an entirely different way. All of this is about bringing heaven down to earth. That's what we're talking about right now. One of the long-term objectives of this thing called creation. We do it step by step, mitzvah by mitzvah, right? So what is holiness? So Parshas Kedoshim in the Torah has these amazing words. God says, I'm holy, and so therefore I'm commanding you to be holy too. Which makes sense since this entire world is a subset of God. So if God is holy, that means that there's holiness in this world, since this world is filled with him. So he's commanding us to reveal the holiness that he implanted in this world, because the only thing that exists is God. So our job is to reveal the holiness that's here. So I heard Rabbi Manus Freeman say one time, just to kind of maybe give you a more concrete example of what I'm talking about, He said, here's what a lot of people think. Let's say I'm going to make a blessing over a cookie, right? It's good to say blessings over food. In fact, you ready for this? The Gomorrah says, if you eat food without making a blessing over it first, it's theft. Can you imagine? It's theft. The idea is that everything belongs to God, but then after we make a blessing, he gives it to us. So if you want to transfer ownership of your food, of your cookie, of your life, or your house, you do it through blessings. Because otherwise, it just belongs to God and you took it. <laughs> so the idea is you have a cookie, and a lot of people think that a cookie, in terms of holiness, is a neutral entity. right? But then I make a blessing, and then I sanctify it. I lift it up. I make it holy. So Rabbi Freeman says that's not what's going on. (laughs) It's deeper than that. Because if the world is filled with godliness, then the cookie is already holy. You understand? 
So what are you doing with a blessing? You're not making it holy. You ready for this? You're revealing the holiness that's already there. After you get out of the shower and the bathroom mirror is all fogged up, and then you rub it, and then you can see again. So this world is clouded over, so to speak, right? There's a lot of concealment. God conceals himself in this world. One of the just home-run Jewish thoughts is that the word for world, olam, has the Hebrew root of the word elam, ayin lamed mem, which means hidden. Isn't that interesting that the word for world and the word for hiddenness is the same? Why? Because God is hidden in this world. But when we do mitzvahs, we reveal God's presence. See, a lot of people think that through my belief in God, I will create his existence. <laughs> it's kind of crazy. Like, I, no, 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 no. You, you, you can reveal what's already there. See, the philosophers used to wonder, did God create human beings or did human beings create God? So for us, that's like the silliest question in the world. Of course, God created human beings. But a lot of people think, or let's say a lot of people live like God is just a thought in their head. So the idea is, no, you are a thought in God's head and God doesn't have a head. All right, that's, that, that's the reality. But for many of us, the work is getting this thought inside of our head, outside of us, so that we're living immersed in the reality of that truth. It's not just a thought, it's a truth. God exists all around us. So I'm going to talk about this idea of getting the thought of God out of your head and actually living inside of it in 3D, 4D, 5D, whatever it is. And then, because that is actually the truth of our existence. Okay. So, one of the most interesting definitions of holiness that I saw is from the Meishaloach, the Ishbitzer Rebbe. He said, holiness is readiness. To be holy means to be ready. To be ready to receive from God at all times. You're in a state of readiness. That's what it means to be holy. So I want to build on that thought. So that's, that's what he says. And by the way, I want, before I plunge into my, my understanding and, and offer you my version of what holiness is, I want to just give you another classic explanation of holiness because this is an important one also. And this is from the Ramban, and he says the following. He raises a very interesting question, which is, or makes an amazing observation, I should say, which is someone can eat 100% kosher, glatt kosher, very strictly kosher, and yet still be a glutton, right? Someone can only drink kosher wine and be an alcoholic. That, that's fascinating if you think about it because 
I think there's sort of like this intuitive bias to think that if I'm keeping the mitzvah of kosher, eating kosher, then on some level I'm also fixing my eating in general. Not the case. That's a separate category. So you have, you have, so, so based on that, the Ramban says something very, very interesting about what it means to be holy. He says, of course, it almost goes without saying that you can't do forbidden things. But what he adds to this conversation is holiness is withdrawing from the permissible. In other words, it's not just to not do what's forbidden. That's obvious. If you want to reach these higher levels called holy, you have to minimize in indulging in that which is permissible. So, so in other words, now by the way, of course, the Ramban wants you to be happy, wants you to be fulfilled, and everything like that. But do you need that second and third and fourth hamburger? Yeah, I understand it's kosher. Do you need that third, fourth, and fifth cup of wine? I understand that the wine is kosher. And so in terms of activities in general, to remove yourself from the permissible, so this is getting into the realms of holiness according to the Ramban. Okay, that's just a classic, classic understanding of Torah and a pathway that the tzaddikim over the generations have really embraced. And so it's important to know. Okay, so now I want to build on this idea with my own understanding of what the Ishpitzer is talking about in terms of being that holiness means readiness. So, and I want to introduce a word into the conversation, which I think is one of the most, in my opinion, one of the most beautiful words there is, and that is flow, divine flow. Now, at all times, there is shefa, there is bracha, there's blessing and life force coming from above to below into a person. So now the ideal is that you then take that life force that's flowing into you and it's got to flow out of you. And that is flow. In other words, it's not just about receiving. You then have to complete the, the flow of the blessing of the divine energy and allow it to go through you and manifest itself in the realm of action. And now the keys to unlocking the divine light that get into you, this is the Torah and these are the mitzvot. These are the unique ways that you can take the light inside of you and that you can make it flow outside of you. And to me, that's holiness. And why? Because what you're doing is you're taking that divine flow, that heavenly light, and you're bringing it down into earth. 
In other words, you're making the world more holy. And it's happening through you. Because that energy that's coming from above to below into you is now going through you into this world. So that's, that's, that's the picture that I, and we're going to go into more detail, but that's, that's the picture. Heaven, flo- heaven flows through you. Now, I heard in the name of the Zohar, what is one of the sources in human beings, we should know for, from it, for disease? Okay, and it's, it's very much locked into this model that I just shared with you. So the Zohar gives the imagery of a dam and stagnant water. You know, a dam sort of like traps the water and the water's all welled up and you can have stagnant water. Now, stagnant water is a place where disease breeds. In fact, I don't know if you've experienced this. I have. Sometimes you'll find that there's like a lot of mosquitoes around. Like, where are all these mosquitoes coming from? And so one of the pieces of advice, and I've done this, I've seen this, is that look around your house, in your backyard, wherever it is, a lot of times there will be a stagnant little pool of water. And you'll see, like, mosquito eggs, like on the surface of the, of the, of the still water. Like, for instance, if you have a planter, sometimes there's a rainfall, and like the top of the top layer of the planter will get filled with, with water and it will just sit there. Okay. So the idea is like this. There's light and energy, shefa, brocha, coming down into a person at all times. But if it stays trapped inside you, it stagnates and it can produce disease. Now, this phrase came to me and I, I thought it was almost like alarming. You ready for this? Stale light. Stale light. In other words, this light is coming into you. If it doesn't have a way to get out of you, it can become stale inside of you. You don't want to have stale light inside of you. It needs to flow out. That's the thing. Now, I want to go a little bit deeper now. You know, we all have a certain mazel. And a mazel kind of means that there's certain parameters when we're born that are put on our life. And these parameters that are put on our life are designed for our soul's fixing. Okay? So, Rabbi Dessler discusses this idea. In other words, it's not just like a lottery ticket and, wow, you got great mazel, you're like a multimillionaire, this is amazing, I got lousy mazel, I just, you know, I'm getting a few bucks that I got to pull together. So, The manifestations of it, some might be more pleasant, seemingly. Some may be less pleasant, seemingly. But the mazel that a person has during their lifetime is uniquely tailored to your soul's fixing 
and needs in this world so that it can be successful. In other words, the idea is if someone has, you know, quote unquote, great mazel and they've been blessed with great wealth, well, in certain ways, that's going to make their life more comfortable in this world. Maybe they're not going to have to worry about rent so much or food so much and things like that. That's true. But they're going to have to answer in a very serious way at the end of this lifetime, did you do your soul's fixing with that extra abundance that was allotted toward you? And then it's sort of like, well, you know something? That's actually a very challenging thing to do, especially because money gets really sticky. Because once you get that money, you're like, eh, that's, uh, I don't want to give it up so quickly. <laughs> that's my money. Right? So, so not only is it challenging to know what to do with that level of abundance, but it becomes oftentimes harder to part with it. So, again, the idea is mazel hits on the length, of, the length of a person's life, the amount of money that they have. You know, I saw something very interesting. Whether you're ready for this, whether you're born north or south of the equator, isn't that interesting? That that's one of the aspects of, of mazel. But again, all of this is done in order to maximize your chances of success in this world. Even if on the exterior, it doesn't seem like necessarily what you would have chosen for yourself, it's what God who knows what your soul needs in order to be fixed, the circumstances that will maximize your chances for success. Okay, so with that as an introduction, since the number, and also the number of children a person has, like whether, you know, just that category is also tied into mazel. All right, so now you would think based on this, I'm born, you're born, we're all born with X number of years of life assigned to us. Okay, not so fast. The Talmud says, you know what? It's a little bit more complicated than that. And now we're going to get back into this discussion of divine flow, okay? That remember, at all times, there's shefa, blessing, bracha, coming from above to below into you, and the idea is for you to flow that light and not allow it to get trapped inside of you to flow through your actions in the form of Torah and mitzvahs. Because those are the unique keys that can unlock the light that's inside you and allow it to get into this world. Okay. So now what does the Talmud say about lifespan? And it's a very amazing, interesting teaching. Believe it or not, the Rashayim, the wicked of the world, don't live out the full number of years that are allotted to them. They surrender numbers of years, depending on the person, depending on God's judgment, and they don't live out their full life. So, okay, well, that's, that's interesting. That's interesting. Now, what happens to those years? That's the question. So I was thinking, what is the, just to give it by way of example, what is the number one society, high society event of the year? Do you know what the answer is? 
the Met Gala. The Metropolitan Museum of Art in New York once a year has a gala, and this is like the number one society event, period, okay? Let's say I get a ticket to the Met Gala, right? And I can't make it. So I call up my sister and I say, hey, you want to go? And the Met Gala people are like, whoa, wait a second, wait a second, not so fast. Just slow down. That ticket is non-transferable. <laughs> you know what that means? That means it's for you. It's not for anybody else. You can't just give it away. Okay, and you'll see that phrase, non-transferable, on like airline tickets. Like, I can't make it to France. You want to go to France? Well, no. No, no, no. It doesn't work like that. Your name is on that ticket. You can't just hand it to someone else. Okay. So with the idea of non-transferable being very much in our minds right now, what happens to those years that the wicket give up? And the Talmud continues to explain something rather shocking. Those years are up for grabs. And the righteous person through the proper choices that they make in life, can actually access those years and bring them down into themselves and extend their lives in this world. Now again, let's fit that, that idea into our model. That means that there's, again, this divine flow coming from above to below. This life force is coming into us at all times. In addition, in terms of our own lifespan, years can be coming down, extra years of life can be coming down into us. Or the opposite, if the shefa, if the light that's coming inside of us gets trapped so that we're not manifesting it and that light becomes stale in us, Chas v'shalom, God forbid, the opposite can happen. We can be surrendering years. Now, I just want to just dwell a little bit on this idea again of flow. The importance of getting that light outside of us. I've talked to you a number of times about something that's really important and, and very much part of the essential model of the human being. And that's the orla that's around all of our hearts. Now, the word orla, usually people associate it with this little flap of skin that's a, that a little boy is born with that, that gets cut off on the eighth day at a bris. Okay, that's fine. But actually... Orla is, is much more widespread and much more of an ongoing reality in all of our lives, both men and women. Because the Torah says that we have this blockage, this orla, around our hearts. All of us do. You see, one of the most difficult aspects of the human condition is I know what the right thing is, I want to do it, I'm not doing it. I'd like to do it, 
I know what I'm supposed to do. I'm 100% not doing it. That's this idea that the light is inside of you, but the orla around our hearts is trapping that light and it's not getting out of us. I'm so struck by this teaching from Rav Frimer, the Eretz Svi. He says, a lot of us, we have knowledge inside of our heads, but it's not inside our hearts. Remember that, that amazing teaching. I don't have a Torah source for it, but it totally aligns with Torah. That the farthest distance in the universe is between the mind and the heart. So we've got to get our minds and our hearts together. But how do I know if my mind and my heart is together on a certain idea? And the answer is, if I'm actually doing it in reality, if I'm living it, if it's outside me, if I'm performing it, then I know it's not just in my head, it's in my head and my heart, okay? So, so you can know what the right thing to do is, but if you're not doing it, it's trapped inside of you. So you can think of it in two ways. Either way, it's the one way you can think of it is that it's the orla around your heart stopping it. Another way of thinking about it is that your mind and your heart are simply not together with it. Or a third way that you can think about it is this orla, this, this blockage around your heart is separating your mind from your heart. In other words, why isn't your mind sinking with your heart? Because this, there's this barrier blocking the mind from coming into the heart. That's this barrier that's around the heart. Now, just extend this teaching because it's just, it's, it's so deep. He says that Gehenim, the Eretzvi says Gehenim, right? Translated as hell, but it's, it's not quite hell. But above earth, there's this realm called Gehenim, where the soul gets purified before it goes to the next higher realm, which is called Shemaim, or heaven. So do you know what the Eretz Svi says? He says, do you know what Gehenim is? It's an orla around heaven. It's an orla around Shemaim. It's a blockage around Shemaim. And then he says something even more amazing. If you get rid of the orla, the blockage around your heart, you will get rid of Gehenna, the blockage around Shemayim. And then the soul will just zip right through, right into Shemayim. It may go through Gehenna, but not in, it will just zip right through, right? So these are amazing thoughts, but they all tie back into the model that we're talking about today, which is divine flow, which is that there's life force and light and blessing coming into us from above at all times, and it has to flow outside of us. And that when we do that, we become holy. Now, I want to give you a model for that that's in the Torah. If, if I were to ask you, what is the first time God's holiest name, the Yudke Vavke, is mentioned in the Torah? Well, I mean, if I didn't know the answer to this question, I would think, I don't know, the very first passage of the Torah? So believe it or not, 
we go through the narrative of the seven days of creation and the Yudke Vavke is not mentioned once. The name Elohim is mentioned, which correlates with nature. Actually, the Gematria of Elohim is 86, which is the Gematria, famously, of Hateva, the nature, the nature, the nature of the world, right? So in other words, first God makes this conduit, this pipeline called nature. And then once this pipeline called nature is in place, then he flows his holiness, which is beyond this world, into this world so that we can receive it. It's almost like if you think of, if you think of it in terms of like the, the electrical power that's given to a city, like, you know, you've got the electrical power plant. Now imagine I'm in my kitchen and I turn on the light. If I was getting the full-on power from the electrical power plant, every time I turned on a light in my house, my house would explode. It would literally explode. So you have all these breaker systems, which sort of like compact the energy, lower the energy from the energy plant to my kitchen, and now I can receive this light. This is the model for nature. Nature sort of like creates this step-down power plant compactor system so that God's holiest light can flow into this world without exploding the world. Because otherwise, how can the finite exist in the presence of the infinite? Anytime God would create the finite, it would explode before the infinite. Do you understand? So we have to, God has to create something, and that thing is called nature, the natural order. Okay, so that's why the Yudke Vavke, God's holiest name, does not appear in the seven days of creation, because first we have to set up this breakdown system, this, this conduit, this pipeline, where it can process the highest divine light. All right. Now, with that in mind, we're back to our first question. Where is the first appearance of God's holiest name? So it's in the very first verse after the seven days of creation. As you can imagine, like you, you would have thought, well, it's got to be in the very first passage of the Torah, right? The very first verse of the Torah. Well, then the world wouldn't exist. <laughs> okay, let's get a world first. Okay, we got, a, we got a world, we created nature, God created nature, and now the very first verse, you're going to see the Yudke Vavke. And just the, the logic of that is divine. It's absolutely divine. You see how the universe is absolutely perfectly ordered and perfectly constructed. Even the concealment in the world is perfectly ordered, right? Because nature conceals God unless you know there's no such thing as nature, Right? That nature itself is just ongoing miracles that we've gotten used to or bored of, right? As the rabbis explain. Sort of like, oh, the sun's just setting again. Wait, the sun's setting? <laughs> Wait, and then I guess the sun's rising. Well, I thought it set. <laughs> you mean it's rising? Right? But we just go, okay, you know. Now we'll even just check the newspaper and tell you, like, the exact moment it's going to happen, and then it's sort of like even less surprising, right? Oh yeah, 517 today, the sun sets, right? We, and then we can say that without our 
heads melting, you know? Okay, so now let's, let's get to the first verse <clears throat> where God's holiest name is mentioned. And you're going to see how this fits absolutely perfectly into what we've been discussing, this divine flow, how it comes from above and through us into this world. <coughs> okay. So, in, it's in chapter 2, verse 4. If you want to look it up in, the, in Sefer Breshis, in the book of Genesis, the book of Genesis. And we have to do just a little, little, little decoding, right? Because the Torah is the infinite compressed into the finite. And so every single word is like levels and levels and levels and levels. These are the products of the heaven and the earth. We've got kind of like a little bit of a summary of the seven days of creation that we just read about. These are the products of the heaven and the earth when they were created on the day that Hashem, God, made earth and heaven. Now that Hashem there that we just read, that's the first yud Vavke. Okay, fine. Now I noticed something that I think is amazing. But here it is. It says, so, Bihibaram, this is the word, a couple words before the first Yudke Vavke. This word, Bihibaram, which is translated as created, these are the products of the heaven and the earth when they were created. The Zohar says, Bihibaram, if you rearrange the letters of Bihibaram, it, it, it spells Ba'avraham. For the sake of Avraham, the world was created. And Avraham there is the prototype, the, the model of, of the righteous person. So for the sake of the righteous person, the world was created. And then, three words after that, you have the Yudke Vavke. Now if you didn't get it yet, let me just explain it to you. In other words, God creates this thing called nature, this pipeline, right? This breaker system, right? If you want to think of the power plant model, where this super divine energy, the Yudke Vavke, flows through into this world. What is the last gateway before the light of Hashem enters through this world? The righteous person, right? Behib Avraham, for the sake of the righteous person. And then the third word after that is Hashem's name. So through the gateway of our actions, do you understand how we're talking about divine flow again? There's light and blessing from above coming down into us below. It flows through us and then it enters into the world. We are that last gateway. Now, with that in mind, you can understand one of the deepest Torahs. The Kutzka Rebbe famously asks, where is God? And so, you know, I, I would think if I wanted, like, the first answer that I think would come to us is everywhere. God is everywhere. So, 
The Kutzker Rebbe says something much, much deeper. He says, God is where you make a place for him. Right? God is where you allow him to enter because you are the last gateway. Yes, God is absolutely everywhere. But if you're cheating in business and you're speaking slanderous, harmful things behind people's back, yes, God is everywhere. But in a way, what difference does it make? He wants us to channel his light through our decisions, through our actions into this world. That's the amazing thing. So where is God? God is where you allow him to be manifest by allowing the Torah, the mitzvahs, the divine light to flow through you into this world and for it not to get trapped inside of you. So the question is, how can we advise someone not just to have a good thought or a good intention, but to actualize it in this world? So, so you have to be really careful with a person because a lot of times if you, if you tell someone to do something, it scares them away. And people don't like to be told to do anything, even if it's something that's obviously good for them. Like, let's say they're delicious brownies, and you actually say, okay, eat those brownies. Eat a brownie. It's like, no, okay, now I don't want to eat a brownie. And I love brownies, and I don't want to eat a brownie anymore. Because you just ordered me to eat a brownie, you know? So it's, human nature is really interesting. We don't like, we don't like that. We, we, so, so, so when you're talking to someone and you're trying to get them to do something, you really have to be delicate. You have to be extremely delicate because you might actually end up having the opposite effect on them. And, and they might, even though they know what you're saying is correct, might be doubled down in terms of not doing it. Before I was just not doing it because I'm lazy. Now I'm not doing it <laughs> because you're trying to make me do it. <clears throat> so the, I, I always think the best way is to be a role model yourself. If people see that you're doing it and that you're happy doing it, you're doing it with happiness, then they're going to want to do it. And, and I'll tell you something. One of the most amazing things about Reb Shlomo is he never told anybody to do anything. He just inspired them. He just told them how beautiful life is and how great God is and how good God is and how unbelievable tzaddikim righteous people are. And, you know, people had a, you know, he would sing and, and you would sing with him and you would actually have like, you know, quote unquote, a religious experience. By the way, when you sing, you, there's an aspect of our soul which is inside of us, and then an aspect of our soul which is outside of us. And when you sing, you bring the higher aspect of your soul into you. And now listen to this. What is speech? So this is unbelievable. Speech is the intersection between the mind and the body. So when you actually talk, you physicalize thoughts. 
Isn't that an amazing idea? When you speak, you put a garment of like echoes, sound waves. There's an aspect of physicality to what just used to be thoughts. You physicalize thoughts. So thought and body intersect in speech. But now listen to this. That's good for just your normal self, for the aspect of your soul that's inside your body. But when you sing, you take the higher aspect of your soul, you bring it down into your body, and that's what becomes physicalized. In other words, song is a physicalization of your higher self. So that, <clears throat> that is amazing. So people would sing, and then at the end of that, they would want to do more. And then when you were inspired to want to do it yourself, everything becomes that much more meaningful because you don't feel coerced because you're doing it because you want to do it. And that's the most empowering thing in the world. In general, I mean, it really depends on person to person, but most spiritual growth in people will never take place through, the, through, through debates. Because let's say you succeed in making your point. The way the other person experiences it is, I lost. Now, coming from the standpoint that I lost the debate, I'm the opposite of inspired right now. So that's why Shabbos meals are so great. Because a Shabbos meal is that headquarters where people get to experience something more inspired on their own. And then they go, I want more of that. Now, I want to go further into this idea of just trying to model this world and our place in this world, okay? I told you that the Talmud says that the righteous don't live out all of their years and those years become up for grabs and that you can bring time itself, years of life into you and they can flow out of you. Isn't that amazing? You can bring time from above down to below through you and extend your life through proper choices. So the Sefer Yetzirah, one of the holiest books in Judaism, there's a debate. I, I just love that there's a debate as to the authorship. You ready for this? Here are the candidates. Adam Harishon, the first person ever. Avraham Avinu, right? Abraham, or Rabbi Akiva. Like, if these are, do you, do you know what that means? If those are the three choices, it means it doesn't matter who wrote it. Whoever wrote it is like, it's, it was the highest and holiest, right? It's just beyond. It's telling you that the Sefi Yitzhira is beyond. So the Sefi Yitzhira says, all of reality can be broken down into three categories. The first category, it's, it's called, in Hebrew you say, olam, shana, nefesh. Okay, these are the three categories. World, right? That means, often it's translated as space, but not outer space. Space meaning, you know, the physical universe, okay? So there's space, time, and soul. 
These are the three categories that of all of reality can be boiled down into, space, time, and soul. And what I think is so, to me, just one thing, just, just one observation off of that, what's so striking about that is that science talks about the space-time continuum quite a bit. Time-space continuum, right? And what's so cool is, is that, you know, thousands of years ago, we were already hip to that. But we were making it more comprehensive and adding the dimension of soul. Which, if you think about it, yeah. You know, unless you've got the dimension of soul, you, haven't, you really haven't got it at all. And in fact, you know, famously, the, the Heisenberg effect says that if you want to measure the exact location of something, the exact location of something will be influenced by the observer. In other words, you can't, it's, it, you can't just situate something in time and space without incorporating the one who is observing, that that impacts the calculation. You can look it up. It's called the Heisenberg effect. In other words, Heisenberg was already talking about the necessity of incorporating the dimension of soul. These are my words, but it's consistent with what he's saying. So time, space, and soul. So even the physicists now are hip to that extension and rounding out of the essential elements of creation. Okay. But now I want to go deeper. So the Sefer Yetzirah says that, but then the Sefer Yetzirah expands on it in the following way. Listen to this. Amazing. The dimension of Olam, which we're translating as space, right? That's the physical universe. The Sefer Yetzirah says that correlates with fire. And let's think about that. That means we dwell amidst fire. You know, the other day I was commiserating with a friend of mine over some bad news that we had heard. And I just sort of remarked, I said, you know, no one gets out of this world unscathed. You can't get through this world without getting burnt on some level, on some level. And then I thought, wow, I just learned that in the Sefer Yetzirah. The realm of Olam, the realm of space, correlates with fire. I thought that was really, really striking and, you know, very relatable. Like, wow, that's our lives. Now listen to this. This blew my mind. The Sefiyot here says the realm of time correlates with water. Now, let's think about that. Water flows. Didn't we just say that there's light coming from above down into you and that you can channel years of life that have been surround, surrendered by the wicked? You can flow those years, you can flow time, which the Sefiyot here is telling you is like water, that those years, that time can flow through you, into you? Isn't that striking? And it also, understanding that time is water, can make us understand one of the most mysterious things about life. The way that time 
sometimes goes really slowly and sometimes time goes really quickly, like the flow of water. Like sometimes you feel stuck in your life. You feel stuck in the same place. You know what that is? Stagnant water. That's the water not flowing out of you. It's stuck inside you. Sometimes time is just delightful. It's like a babbling brook. It's just going at such a sweet pace. You just love it. And then other times it's like, it's Shabbos already? It was just Shabbos. Where did the week go? Or where did the year go? Or where did my life go? That's the rushing water of time. So time is water. And what about soul? Soul is breath or air. And it says, the Sefer Yitzhira says, that, that soul is air, it's breath, it's what mediates between the fire and the water. Between time and space. It's the soul, it's the air, it's the breath that mediates between the two of them. So let's all take a deep breath. <laughs> Maybe one more. Now water is also compared to Torah. The Talmud says that water is Torah. So if this world is fire, you know what puts out fire? Water. You learn Torah, learn Torah every day. You can put out the fires around you. And you know, I saw from Rav Yitzhak Isaac Haver that when the soul leaves the body, that there's such a thing called Eish HaTorah, which means the fire of Torah. So all of the Torah that a person's learned over their life, that fire surrounds their soul and the fire of Torah counteracts the fire of Gehenna. The greater fire puts out the lesser fire. Isn't that interesting? So that's on the next world level. So, so let's put all of these thoughts together. What does it all mean? The name of this dimension Kabbalistically speaking, that we all live in. It's called Olam which means the world of action. Which means our job in this world is to do. You know, it's nice to feel and it's nice to think, but the priority is to do. And that's why the mitzvot are so action-oriented. You see, it's, this is such a different, it's a giant paradigm shift from, from, <clears throat> from what the Western world imparts. Have a good heart, think good thoughts, mean well, but there isn't that emphasis on action that Torah places. Torah says it's all going to boil down to doing. Why? <clears throat> because doing is going to be the last step 
in terms of the divine flow, that light that's coming into you at all times and needs to leave you because you don't want it to get stale inside of you. So if you have, give. If you have, give. What follows now are some questions and answers. I couldn't help but think when you were describing the flow, you know, from above, through us, and out into the world, I couldn't help but think about the glowing nature of, you know, really holy people. And and maybe that's what we're seeing, you know. A hundred percent. Khani, you're... You're, you're one, I'll let you speak again in a second, but that is the light that is on the face of holy people. It's exactly what we're talking about. And all the books talk about this. That is the light on their face. So, and that light has been seen by a zillion people. That, that's not something like, oh, there's a light on that person's face. You, that's a known thing. Go ahead. Yeah. the light to flow down into the world anyway through you through you why like it does it change when it flows through me yes it gets better and it gets better and stronger okay so if it gets stagnant in someone and then they pass away what happens to that light that was supposed to come down to us or to the world i mean it has to come down through someone else then right or that person has to come back and become reincarnated and, and, and get it out, you know? Either way, it's got to be transacted. Okay, I'm, just, I'm just, like, toying with the idea of, like, specifically what... I mean, I know that the answer is, like, we each have our unique mission, and because we each have that individual mission, when it goes, when the light comes down through us, we're, in a sense, fulfilling it. The question ultimately comes back to, like, what is that specific mission, you know? You know, you don't have to worry about it. You don't have to worry about it. Because just play to your strengths. Do you know what I mean? Like, if you are an amazing painter, like, probably your gift to the world is not carpentry. You know what I mean? In, in, other, words, in other words, just think about usually what you, what you do best what you're the best at is usually correlates with what you love to do. Like most people, if they're like completely uncoordinated, don't love to run through obstacle courses. It's like they're not like, oh, I can't wait to wake up at 6 a.m. to do obstacle courses so that I can hit my face against the floor over and over again. You know, but if there's something that you, if you are a great baker, then probably you love to bake. Whatever you are good at is what you love to do. So what I'm suggesting is figure out what you love to do and do more of that. But do it with divine purpose. I'm going to say that again. Figure out what you love to do because that's probably what your gift is because that's probably what you're good at. Figure out what you love to do. Do more of that, but just do it with divine purpose. That's, that's how to go about this. Thank you. Sounds good. I already know the answer, so I guess I'm, I'm lucky. <laughs> okay, great. Great, but then do more.
don't burn yourself out. But remember, there's always levels, and there's always a chance to do whatever you're doing well better. Thanks for listening. We do this every week, so join in again next Sunday for a new podcast where we explore the amazingness of life. And review us and send in any comments or suggestions. I'd love to hear them.